Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. I'm excited about here this evening. Um, we're going to continue our journey that we have had here together. And uh, I, I, I want to say last night was a little rough. I, I recognize that. Um, and uh, But to be perfectly honest with you, our selfishness needs that, doesn't it? Most, uh, shall you say, in-your-face messages. I'm thankful. Okay, I recognize there's a whole world out there of people they pride themselves on being in your pray, in your face, rip, snort, and rip you up one side, down the other, rip your face off kind of preachers. I don't consider myself one of those. Okay, I is never to be mean. I remember actually back in Bible college. I don't know if Pastor Kagan remembers this or not. Um, there was a period of time when uh, shortly after God had confirmed to me that God had called me to be an evangelist, that I felt like, well, if I'm going to be an evangelist, I need to be a hard preacher. And so every chance I got, I would stand up and I would uh, rip people's faces off from, from the pulpit. And I kind of thought, well, this is just the kind of preacher I'm going to be. And unfortunately, it was born out of insecurity because I felt like I had to prove myself by preaching in a certain way at a certain level, at a certain hardness. And I remember um, I had some students, I don't remember if your pastor was one of them or not, to be honest with you, but I had some friends who said, Bobby, you really can't preach like that. You can't do that. It's not helping anyone. And I remember thinking, they're not going to tell me how to preach, and I got even harder, right? This is the growth of an immature young man. And um, I remember there came a point where I thought, you know what, maybe they have a point. And I swung the other direction, and I refused to be confrontational ever. And I determined that I was going to do nothing but say things that encouraged people and that made people feel happy and good. And I realized pretty quickly that's not going to help anybody either. And I remember at one point, I, God brought me to a, a point of brokenness. And for me, that point of brokenness was, I don't want to pride myself on being an encouraging preacher. I don't want to pride myself on being a hard preacher. God, I just need to preach what you want me to preach. And one of the things that I've, I've tried to do, um, and I'm not saying I always do it right or well, but one of the things that I really endeavor to do is to remain sensitive to what God would have me to preach. And I found there have been times where there have been some rip-snorting messages that have really burned the barn in the past, and I stand up to preach them, and boy, that came out different. Like, wow, I smiled more in that message than I think I've ever smiled in a message before. In fact, last summer, the end of the summer, uh, we were with Matt Weber and Shano, uh, not, not Shano, in his new church in Viroqua, Wisconsin, southwest Wisconsin, and while we were there, um, it was the first night of our last cola clash for the year, and uh, while we were there on that first night, I just felt like God said to me, you're going to stand up and you're going to preach the gospel and you're going to preach against sin, but you just need to love on these kids. 
And that was the weirdest gospel message I've ever preached in my life, Pastor. The weirdest. I, yes, I talked about sin, but I felt like I was apologizing the whole time. And I don't know how to say it, but God gave me a love in that gospel message like I'm not sure I've ever experienced in the pulpit. And I preached the truth. I didn't water down the truth, but it came out differently. And wow, that was an exciting night there that night. There was a young man that my son had recruited, David. He's uh, 10 years old at the time, and he was out in the field playing, and he saw this, this adult, like young adult, sitting in the corner of the field crying. And David thought, I better go and talk to him. He ran inside, grabbed a Cola Clash brochure, came back out and ran up to this young man and said, hey, you should come to the Cola Clash. Have you heard about it? And long story short, the young man had been praying. He was at rock bottom and he'd been praying and saying, God, I know there's got to be more to life. Can you please send somebody to show me what it is? And my son showed up. He said, you know what? I need to come out to this thing. He came out there that night and I, I preached and he came back in that invitation and trusted Christ as a savior. There was a young lady there that very night who came with a really bad deal of a boyfriend. You could tell he was um, emotionally abusive to her. Um, in fact, as just another evidence of that, she was, she was in the parking lot waiting for him to come and um, she, uh, she didn't want to be put on a team until her boyfriend showed up. And so she kind of waited. I'm, I'm taking too long in telling this story. But um, he came with his new girlfriend. Yeah. The poor girl didn't know what to do. She came inside. And during some, like the inside stuff, you know, when we're, we're eating and the skit, he had her sit next to him. So he had his new girlfriend on the one side and his ex-girlfriend on the other side. And that poor girl was having a rough time. At one point, the young man stood up and stormed out, dragging the two girls with him right at the very beginning of the preaching because he saw where things were heading and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He went outside, he put his new girlfriend in the truck with him and sat there and I think called his ex-girlfriend's mom and said, you need to come and pick her up and told her to go sit on a rock outside and wait till mom came. Well, my wife had come out of the trailer. I know, this is terrible, right? My wife came out of the trailer at that point. She had just gotten the kids in, and uh, she saw this young lady. By this time, the young man had left with his new girlfriend, saw her sitting on the rock, bawling her eyes out. She came up to her and said, would you like to go inside and hear the rest of the message? She looked up, and through tears, she said, I think so. And I'll be honest with you, I feel like if she had walked in there and I was ripping it up one side and down the other, and sometimes that's what's necessary, okay, sometimes it's what's needed. I'm not sure she would have responded in the way that she did there that night. She was one of the first young ladies up, one of the first young ladies back, trusted Christ as her Savior. In fact, I preached for them in November, and she was there. Um, and in fact, her mom started coming to church. It's just a mirac miraculous story there. But I say all of that to say, you know, here tonight, I've got a topic the Lord's put in my heart, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at this topic. I have no idea how this is going to come out here this evening, but I do believe that this next step, this next um, aspect to our journey, we're, we're taking a look at the fact that God wants us to be loving Christians. It's really how God wants us to be identified. If we have everything right, but we don't have love, we are missing the most essential factor in Christianity. Last night, we took a look at the fact that selfishness, which is the opposite of love, selfishness hides sin, but love comes clean. 
And I praise the Lord, I know God was working in many hearts, and I trust you did not just talk to God about it. I trust, perhaps as the Lord led, you had some conversations about what he was putting his finger upon between last night and here tonight. Well, I'm going to take the next step here this evening, and I want to cover one other aspect of selfishness here today. And that is this. In fact, um, you can turn with me. We're not going to stay there, but you can turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, like I said, we're not going to stay there, but I want you to see this here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I believe it's verse number 5, it tells us that charity seeketh not her own, right? That's the essence of selfishness, right? When we seek our own, when everything and everyone revolves around us. Charity seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. And when we look at at least that section of this list of what love does, that primary concern for the good of others over and above the good of oneself, that priority and that perspective in our lives, it's going to change the way we interact with the offenses of others. Let me put it to you this way. Again, last night, the statement that I really wanted you to remember was that selfishness hides sin, but love comes clean. Tonight, I want you to remember this. Selfishness harbors resentment, but love forgives. God in heaven, I do ask that you would attend this meeting tonight. I admit before these friends that I do not have what it takes to deliver this message as I ought to, and so I just come before you and I ask, would you fill me with the Holy Ghost? I pray that your anointing and your unction would be upon me. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to communicate not just my thoughts or my notes, but Lord, would you help me to communicate the message of heaven for this church, for this night, for this moment in time. God, I pray that you would address the needs of hearts in ways that I could not have even uh, foreseen or calculated. Lord, would you cause me to say things that I am oblivious to in such a way that it would strike home and accomplish your work in folks' hearts here tonight. But Lord, we want to be free to love. God, I pray that you would set us free from this bondage of resentment. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me over to the book of Hebrews in chapter number 12. This is where we're going to park and stay here for the evening. But while you're turning, let me say this. I was reading not too long ago. Personally, I'm fascinated by space, space travel. Big fan of Elon Musk and uh, uh, SpaceX. And I followed, you know, the Falcon 9s and the Falcon Heavies and the Starship. My son and I were watching live when the Starship, I think it was Model 12, actually flipped and landed uh, right ways instead of going all the way down and exploding. I love those kinds of things. I am definitely following uh, the missions that we're doing towards the moon, and I just love that stuff. The space launch system, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. It's something that's fascinating to me. I also love to take a look out into the stars and to see what's happening in, in our universe. It's just an incredible testimony to God and his creativity and to his power. But I found this uh, on nasa.gov about one other very fascinating part of our universe. Here's what it said, quote, black holes 
form when the center of a very massive star collapses in upon itself. This collapse also causes a supernova or an exploding star that blasts part of the star into space. You know, it's interesting to me that a force that God created called gravity can cause the very matter of a star to so uh, implode upon itself that it forms what we call a singularity. It forms a constant vacuum that sucks everything into its grip. It's also interesting to me how that very inward force of this collapsing star that turns into a black hole can also form at the same time, an explosion. How can something implode and explode at the same time? I don't know, but that's what these do, okay? They implode and they explode in such a way that that explosion can be seen from across the universe. Let me put it to you this way. You say, what in the world are you getting at, Brother Bosler? Bitterness is selfishness imploded upon itself. Selfishness absorbs every offense around it and also produces explosions of anger that can be seen for miles. You see, this matter of bitterness, this matter of resentment is the inverted photograph of true love. While love is first concerned with the good of others, selfishness is fixated upon the offenses of others and how those offenses harm the self. See, while yes, love thinketh no evil, but selfishness grabs it, chews on it, and swallows it. See, a truly loving person is rarely a bitter person, but a selfish person rarely isn't. A selfish person likely is riddled with bitterness and the pain that goes along with it, yet, strangely enough, typically they have no idea where that pain is coming from. See, selfishness forgets God's goodness. You see, God said that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And as we saw in our Sunday school lesson, every difficult valley we go through, every hard thing that happens to us was designed by God for our good. Yet selfishness forgets God's goodness and sees nothing but injustice. It gets mad at others for what God designed for good and then blames others for what's actually a self-inflicted wound. When our sense of justice is violated and when God's grace is neglected, we end up with a wound that sours our souls and ruins our relationships. That being said, look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14 and following. Here the writer of Hebrews says, follow peace. The idea of that is pursue, chase down peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. 
Now, I think we all understand that God desires for us to, as much as lies in us, live peaceably with all men. God wants us to be at harmony as much as possible with other people. That means that God wants you to live at peace in your home. That means that God wants you to live at peace in your workplace, in your community, in your church. And he's saying, listen, this matter of peace is not something that just automatically happens. It is something that must be pursued. Peace is not an automatic product when we have selfish people all around us, including you, okay? Um, And so therefore, this peace must be pursued not just with your favorite people, but with all men. Not just with the people that are easy to get along with, but with all men. And he says, listen, this is something that will affect your relationship with God, he says, without which no man shall see the Lord. And he underscores how important and essential it is for us to be intentional about pursuing peace in verse 15 when he says, looking diligently. The idea of that word looking is literally to beware, to keep an eye out, to be, uh, uh, shall we say, um, constantly aware that this matter could go bad at any time. Looking diligently. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You know, this matter of bitterness that this passage talks about is not something that will be solved in one service. It's not something that will be solved in a single conversation. It's not something that will be solved through one decision that you make in one moment of your life. It is something that requires regular maintenance. And I recognize I may be speaking to some people who maybe have heard messages on this topic in the, and perhaps you've tasted and seen that God is good in this matter and that you can have freedom. Just because you've had freedom in the past in this matter doesn't mean you don't need freedom tonight. Because this is something that must be constantly maintained and something you must constantly look diligently for. When it comes to this matter of, of bitterness, I find that many times when I know at times when I hear this in my heart against people in my life, I think I'm okay. But it's interesting to me the way that the author of Hebrews um, uh, communicates this concept of bitterness. He doesn't just come out and say, beware lest bitterness happen in your life. He calls it something. He calls it a root of bitterness. And this root is the bitterness. And when we think of a root, typically that's not all we think of, is it? Typically when we think of a root, we think of something that dwells underneath that provides nutrients that ends up producing a fruit above a soil. I doubt when you've gone out somewhere, I doubt you go out looking for roots. You know what I'm saying? You know, I doubt about bitterness. Bitterness lodges itself deep in our soul, below the soil of the conscious mind. It would be impossible to find if it didn't produce clearly visible fruit above the spin. Trouble you and many be defiled. See, the fruit of this root of bitterness by which you can identify that the root is present The fruit is. It's a troubled soul. 
and rotten relationships. You know, perhaps you came in here tonight and perhaps when I began to kind of, you know, talk about resentment, you know, you thought, I don't really know. But really, you're not going to see it even if it was there. You're not going to know that the root is there unless you look for the fruit. See, this root of bitterness, it'll destroy you. It'll destroy your heart from the inside out, and it will destroy your homes. It will destroy your workplaces. It will ruin the relationships in your life. It will cause what was designed by God to be a little slice of heaven, a place of peace and uh, goodness, and it will take it and turn it into a horrible place to be in. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I don't want the root of bitterness, to be plaguing my heart or to be plaguing my life. And so if we're going to diagnose this root and deal with it, the only way you're ever going to find it is to look for the fruit. It's to look for the fruit. Um, one commentator said this, this bitterness is acid to one's soul and eventually it begins to surface. When it does, the fruit it produces is unkind, sour, Sharp, sarcastic, scornful, cynical, mocking, contemptuous, and wounding. Bitterness has nothing good to say about the other person. In fact, it looks for negative things to say about that person in order to affect others' opinions about him as well. I'd like to submit to you that it could well be that the sharpness of your tongue is a fruit of your heart. It could well be that the, <clears throat> the sourness of your soul, that constant glumness that comes upon you, could be the fruit of bitterness. So oftentimes, listen, we could go around, listen, you can go into your backyard and you could pull out a shovel and you could dig all over the place in random places looking for roots. But listen, if you're smart... You're just going to look for a tree or a bush or a plant of some sort. And I will guarantee you in most cases, unless there are weird plants out there that don't have roots that I'm unaware of, you find a plant, you find something that is fruited above the soil, there's going to be a root underneath of it. And what I'm telling you here tonight is when there's a sour soul in your chest and a sharp tongue in your head, it could be that underneath of it, is a root of bitterness. Um, in another place, and don't turn there right now, but in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, has a few things to say about this. It says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Listen, every one of us find ourselves in situations where things happen that get us fired up. We find ourselves in situations where maybe some, somebody does something wrong to us and we're tempted to be enraged by what happens. I talked the other night about, you know, my own faults when it comes to traffic at times. You know, there are times when the, the little kid does something, you know, that messes up uh, your whole day or your afternoon. There are times when the 
husband says something dumb that makes you feel unwanted and unloved. There are times when things like that happen. And what this verse is warning us of is it said, okay, listen, wrath happens, not excusing it, not saying it's okay, but you better not let the sun go down on that thing because what happens is though we're all human and though we all at times react in a way that is unkind and unfair, what can happen is when we let that the sun go down and when we let time elapse, what at first was up here submerges itself down into our core. In fact, the very next command, he says, neither give place unto the devil. You know, again, this is not the point of my message, but I will say, when you let the sun go down on your wrath, when you let offenses and things that happen to you get lodged in your soul, you are literally giving the devil a piece of your heart. I'm not saying that you're possessed. I'm not saying that. Please don't misunderstand me. But you're giving the devil leverage in your life. You're giving the devil headquarters from which to operate. Listen, how many of you were a little freaked out by that Chinese balloon thing that was going around this past week? You know what we recognize? We recognize, and, and I, don't, I don't know why they didn't shoot it down when it was up near Alaska. I don't know why they let it get all of its data and then on its way out of the country. Okay, we'll shoot it down now that its mission has been accomplished. Okay, I don't know what those folks are thinking in high places these days. But you know what? I think most of us, as good old red-blooded Americans, we recognize that dumb balloon has no business in the borders of our country. And I want you to know the devil has no business in the borders of your soul. And when we let the sun go down on our wrath, that's exactly what we're doing. We're letting him float on through. In fact, we're not just letting him float on through. We're letting him land. We're letting him build a base. We're letting him build an arsenal from which he can launch his own attacks on our own souls and on, the other, on our neighbor's. But it's interesting, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Here in this passage, he goes on from what he talks about, this angry, being angry and not sinning and not letting the sun go down upon our wrath and not giving place to the devil. Um, but he goes on a little bit later and he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You know, it's interesting to me that on the heels of him talking about not giving the devil a place, a base of operation, he talks about not letting corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You know, I would argue that the, that corrupt communication, oftentimes it is the volleys of the devil against our friends. In fact, I would say that corrupt communication is evidence of the root of bitterness. That angry word, that hateful tone, that sarcastic comment, that withering look, that reaction... Oftentimes, the words that we speak and the tones which, with which we speak them are evidences. They're the fruit of bitterness. You know, I find sometimes within a marriage, the husband and wife can be so upset at each other for all kinds of things. And it's not necessarily about any one thing that has been done, but it's about the patterns of selfishness that they feel like the other one has. It's about the things, the matter of neglect 
where they haven't been doing what we think they ought to be doing. Those expectations are not met and we feel like we're being treated unjustly in our marriage. And while maybe each one individual item may not be that big a deal, when something reminds you of the trend that you've seen over the period of time of your marriage and your time together, it can cause explosions. You know, have you ever... In your marriage, listen, I'm not perfect. I've had my own words, you know, at times. Um, You ever had words, and afterwards you think, that was dumb. Like the little thing that we were arguing about, what was the big deal, like in the grand scheme? Who cares? And sometimes those things that just blow up out of us, they seem to make no sense. But if you understand this, they make all the sense in the world. You just experienced a fruit. The fruit of bitterness. We talk about the root. Listen, sometimes we can focus so much on the fruit and dealing with the fruit and suppressing the fruit. And I'm not going to say that again or I'm going to count to ten next time. you know, Or I'm going to just try to purpose to focus on the good things. But I'm telling you what, you can take a plant and you can cut it down at the topsoil. And you can, uh, you can do your very best to just cut off branches here and there and try to improve the look of things. But if you don't deal with the root, guess what? The fruit comes back. Sometimes it comes back bigger than ever. So listen, we got to deal, we got to find the fruit of bitterness so that we can locate the root of bitterness. Listen, but he goes on, he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in verse number 31 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor And evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And while I can't necessarily prove there from that passage that explicitly those outward manifestations are necessarily a direct result of the the place of Satan that's allowed through allowing anger to, uh, to continue, I do think it's very interesting the way everything is constructed there in that passage. But I do know this, when I in my life am quick to anger, chances are there's a reason why. When I'm quick to judgment, quick to offer a snap judgment for why I think they said what they said or did what they did, when I'm uh, quick draw McGraw at drawing conclusions and connecting dots and putting the pieces together of the conspiracy of the people all around me, it could be a reason for that. It could be you're looking at the fruit of your bitterness, quick I think sometimes when we're quick to pessimism, quick to doubt whether this plan will really work out, and quick uh, to be negative about what someone maybe has spent a lot of time and effort on, when we're quick uh, in our lives to mock that which we do not understand, when our tongues are quick uh, to sarcasm, when we're quick to gossip about all the juicy details of what what are going on, when we're quick to mistrust someone, often there's a reason why. Because your trust has been broken before. And that bitterness is below the surface. But the fruit is you aren't going to trust anyone ever again. This quickness, this this explosion that in the moment sometimes doesn't even seem to make sense. I find sometimes when people say these sharp things and they hurl these barbs and throw these grenades and they blow up at their kids and they scream at their husband and they get angry and blow up, 
Oftentimes, you ask them why that happened. When they're calmed down, they can't quite even put the pieces together. Oh, there's always a spark that causes the explosion, but the gravity, the magnitude of the explosion is often unexplainable. And I would say here today, if you are quick to assume and quick to offer those uh, defiling words or attitudes or actions, it could be you're looking at a fruit of your bitterness. See, oftentimes people will just deal with the surface issues and never dig below to the root. And this might appear successful for a short time, but inevitably the fruit will regrow because the root was not removed. Maybe you're here and maybe you can identify patterns in your own life. Patterns of defiling, patterns of the troubled soul. By the way, let me talk about this. You know, sometimes people aren't necessarily outward in their manifestations. Maybe you're not the kind of person that blows up and you'd be mortified if you ever did, but you stew. You boil. You know, you're the kind of person that goes home from church and stews because so-and-so didn't look at you right. Nobody noticed I was wearing a new dress today. Can you believe that? Oh, they just hate me there. Oh. Or, you know, uh, maybe somebody didn't stop to say hi because they do all the time. And you're like, they hate my guts. <clears throat> and you just go home and you stew over it. You know, I guarantee, I guarantee you, give that enough time, it'll affect your health. I think some of the health issues that we spend so much time praying about would be solved if you get revival. I think some of these chronic issues, and I'm not saying all of them, please don't misunderstand me, all right, but I think some of these internal anxiety issues in our hearts, these things that sometimes we resort to pills and medications to solve what really only forgiveness will. Oh, don't get me wrong, it could be guilt from the stuff we talked about last night. But that might not be it. It could be that you're an angry, dour person. You're an angry person inside because there's a root of bitterness plaguing your soul. Again, if you're back in our text in Hebrews chapter 12, look at it again, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. When you and your heart are troubled, angry, internalizing that anger, bringing it on the inside, or whether you're the person that explodes and ruins the lives of everyone around you, I think it's safe to say that you ought to at least take a look under that bush, see if there's a root underneath. Listen, consider it a blessing that those fruits happen because otherwise I don't even know that we would ever know about the root. It's a certain sense in which it's the mercy of God that we have a way to identify where that root is by the fruit that it bears in our lives. So that being said, once the fruit has been identified, we can now dig below the surface and find the source of the issue. These fruits often stem from an offense embraced and chewed upon, unreleased, and unforgiven. 
whether real or perceived, these offenses gnaw at our hearts and lodge in our souls. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to set these up in two categories. The first category of offenses that I find can create this root of bitterness in us are what I call true offenses. These are things that someone has done against you that are unequivocally and undeniably wrong. This is where people have genuinely set out and succeeded in injuring your soul, your heart, your body, your finances, whatever it might be. Listen, we could be talking about betrayal here. Maybe somebody in your life you trusted and they stabbed you in the back. That could be an offense that is taken and internalized. Perhaps it's gossip. Maybe you found yourself on the receiving end, so to speak, of a loose tongue of someone who didn't seem to know how to mind their own business, but knew how to make the rounds on the phone. And have you heard about so-and-so? And did you hear about what so-and-so said? And did you hear the latest juicy details about this person and that person? And oftentimes, material is shared that perhaps was shared in confidence and things are said and done and people begin to form narratives because of your words that sometimes go far beyond the truth. And they can damage people's lives. I remember one time as a, as a young person, there was a, a moment in time where I did something that was really bad. I'm not even going to go into what it is here tonight. I did something that was really bad. And I remember at one point in time, I was speaking to uh, my best friend. Remember, we were in the pool in my backyard, and I was sharing with him some of the things that happened. And I remember every time I told a little bit more about what happened, he would go, <gasps> and he would jump under the pool, like he would jump under the water. Then he'd pop back up ready for some more. And I told him just a little bit more about what had happened. He'd go, <gasps> and he'd dunk, dunk himself under the water. And then he'd come back up for some more. And he did this several times, and I kind of got the whole story out. It was the kind of thing I hadn't told another living human being. I wasn't confessing my sin, by the way. You don't confess to your sins to your best friend. Okay? Doesn't work that way, all right? Unless you offended your best friend. But anyway, that's last night's message. Not too long after this, I found out everybody in the youth group knew about it. It wasn't my intention. And I'll be honest with you, as much as what I had done was wrong and I deserved every bit of it, that gossip mill hurt me very deeply. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Folks have done that with you. Maybe you share prayer requests in confidence with somebody. And before you know it, everybody knows about it. It hurts. Maybe you're on the receiving end of those outbursts of anger that we talked about. Maybe your dad would come home drunk, and when he was drunk, he wasn't funny and he wasn't nice. And perhaps he, in anger, hurled vicious words at you. Perhaps he hurled more than words at you. Perhaps you personally were a witness to violence in the home. Maybe it wasn't against you. Maybe it was against your mom. Maybe it was against one of your siblings. But this anger you clearly knew was wrong. And you've taken that offense and you've internalized it and you've lodged it in your soul. It's stuck there. Perhaps you found yourself being hurt by favoritism. You ever been in a situation where somebody always prefers their certain list of people? 
where they're always the one to receive the rewards, they're always the one to receive the promotions, they're always the one to receive their praise, their praise, and it's just not fair. Have you ever been on the hurting end of someone's favoritism? Listen, when you get left behind, when you get passed over for someone who genuinely didn't deserve it, that's hard to take. Some of you have experienced it, and maybe it still hurts to this day. Maybe you found yourself on the receiving end of injustice. Maybe there was something that was said about you, an accusation that was, uh, that was laid at your feet, and it was something you genuinely didn't do. Maybe you lost some money because of it. Maybe you lost your job because of it. Maybe you lost your spouse because of it. You know, it's very difficult when you're falsely accused. It's a very difficult thing to handle. I mean, that's the epitome of a, uh, a, 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 when your sense of justice is violated. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of physical abuse. Maybe it was a spouse who didn't know when to stop. Maybe it was a spouse who, if you said just the right thing, would allow his hand to come into contact with your face. Maybe you found yourself the subject of emotional abuse. Oh, there was never a finger laid upon you, but the words were just as bad as those fingers, and yet those words were not necessarily angry. They were manipulative. You know, it amazes me. I talked about that girl uh, from Wisconsin earlier, the fact that her ex-boyfriend made her sit next to him with the new girlfriend on the other side. Good night. That's emotional abuse. You can tell sometimes people are under the thumb of these other people and somehow, some way, they have an emotional power over them and they just know how to pull their strings and make veiled threats and threaten to maybe not like them anymore or love them as much anymore if they don't do what they want you to do. And when you're on the receiving end of emotional abuse, it hurts. Honestly, most of the time, folks don't even realize that they are. How about, have you ever been the, uh, the object of neglect? Not, uh, not too many months ago, I was preaching and I had a man come up to me and uh, he told me that he hated his parents. This man was probably in his 70s. He said, to this day, I hate my parents with all of my heart. He said, when I was a child, neither my father nor my mother cared a lick for me. He said, at one point, I realized I could do the game of football, and I went out to play football, and I came back, and I had just won an award for football, and I was trying to tell my mom, and my mom said, that's dumb. Why don't you do something that actually counts for a change? Very difficult. You know, maybe you in your home have found yourself where you just wanted your parents to spend time with you in a certain way that made sense to you, that was meaningful to you, but they never did. They never cared. They never stopped working. They missed your birthday parties. They missed your softball games. They were too absorbed in themselves to even go out of their way to spend time with you. And that neglect, though there was nothing necessarily negative said, it hurts. Maybe you were the subject of bullying or snubbing or unfair treatment. Maybe you had things stolen from you and maybe you even know who did it. 
Maybe you found yourself the victim of a swindling scheme, and maybe you have no idea who did it. There's a lady my wife and I are trying to win to Christ up in Wisconsin, and uh, we believe that this was her. She's never told us that this happened, but at some point she received a call from someone who alleged to be the FBI. And through, I don't even know the series of events, we literally Googled her name and came across this news article from like a week before when we Googled it. And apparently, through a series of circumstances, she was swindled out of her entire retirement. Again, maybe you haven't had something that significant happen to you, but it hurts. It hurts. I have a family member. I won't mention their name in case they see this. They'll probably figure it out, though. Had a family member whose son was a successful businessman in eastern Pennsylvania. He had a candy business, and this business was booming, and so the father invested much of his hard-earned money into his son's business. In fact, invested much of his retirement, even invested major assets in his life into his son's business. Come to find out, his son was cooking the books. Oh, his son was a Christian. His son gave much of the money that he earned to missions, to family members, to churches, to ministries. And yet, when it came out, this, uh, this man's father lost all of his money. That hurts. That hurts. You know, it's these kinds of offenses that can get lodged in our souls. It's these kinds of offenses where folks, maybe intentionally, maybe not, hurt us. And when these things get lodged in our soul, it begins to bear fruit. And as we saw, that fruit was a troubled soul and rotten relationships. But there's a second category of offenses that, that I want to touch on here, and I find that probably more times than not, this is where, this, these are the things that get lodged in our soul, and what's sad to me is these do not need to be lodged in our souls whatsoever, and this is what I would call perceived offenses. The first one category was true offenses. The second category is perceived offenses. These are offenses that we think are offenses. These are things that we think people did to hurt us, but perhaps weren't really done to hurt us. Um, we could talk here about misunderstandings. You ever been talking to somebody and they say something to you and you think they meant A? and you get all up in arms about it, and maybe you clarify later and find out you totally misunderstood what they said? Did you know people could live their entire lives with that perceived offense lodged in their soul, thinking that they insulted them or called them a funny name or something like that? And here they are. For years, they're angry with this person. For years in their heart, they're upset, and, and maybe it's literally wreaking havoc on their family all over something that was a simple misunderstanding. Perhaps it's imagined motives. We think that something happened, and whether this was a good or bad thing, we think we know why they did it. I know why they didn't pick me. Mm-hmm, because so-and-so over there told them something. So-and-so, I don't think they like me. Oh, they've never said that they don't, but I can just tell. 
I can just tell by the way they never make eye contact with me. And I just know that that person went and talked to that person who has the power to make my life better and they passed over me and they didn't make my life better. And I just know it's because that person over there talked to that person over there and they ruined my life. I hate them. And you take a false premise and build a mountain on it. Listen, whether it's a true offense or a perceived offense, it can still ruin your life. It can still soil your soul. It can still rot your relationships if you'll let it. How about unconfirmed offenses? You think somebody did something against you, but you don't have confirmation, but you're pretty sure they're the kind of person that would do that, so you're going to believe that it actually happened. How about this? How about coldness? You know, so-and-so, they just always seem cold around me. They always seem cold. Oh, can't believe that person. I don't think they like me. I don't think they like me at all. You know, honestly, it could be they have an upset stomach, and I'm not joking, okay? It could be they're a different kind of personality than you. Listen, I, I am somewhat introverted in some ways. In some ways, I'm not. I'm weird, okay? I'm just weird. But you know what? I'm not super good at reading people's emotions. I'll just be perfectly honest with you. My wife, that's her specialty. She's really good at understanding how people feel. And unfortunately for me, I'm a little bit outspoken. And because I'm not good at reading people's feelings sometimes, and because I'm outspoken, sometimes I can say things and, and I don't get the fact that it offended somebody. And that's really difficult sometimes because I don't typically try to offend people I just like to say it like it is <clears throat> but you know what there are times when even I can feel coldness there's a person at a, a church that I preached at not terribly long ago and uh, they weren't there on Sunday morning they came on Sunday night and uh, this is a person I've known for years and uh, I've always got the sense that maybe he was not crazy about me you know but I remember I came to the door and I, I, I opened up the door. They were coming in for church that evening and I said, hey, missed you this morning. He said, yeah, we weren't here. We heard you were preaching. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I think he's joking. But I'm not sure. You know, there was a history of coldness for as long as I've known this guy. And you know, sometimes something like that can happen and you can think, there it is. There it is. They hate me. Confirmation. You know what? They could be a jokester. Maybe they didn't really mean it. You could be dead right, but ultimately you don't know. How about unmet expectations? We talked about this briefly. How about unfortunate mistakes? Somebody runs into your car. They didn't mean to. They apologize profusely, but it still hurts. About embarrassment, somebody ever said something that accidentally maybe put you on the spot and embarrassed you? Maybe somebody pointed out a feature that you prefer not to be pointed out, and maybe they didn't mean it, maybe it was a Freudian slip or something like that, but it just mortified you, and maybe it wasn't intended, and yet it still lodges in your soul. Maybe personality conflicts, I've mentioned that. Maybe you find yourself on the outside of cliques. Listen, it might not be that they're rejecting you. It might just be that they're so insecure they don't want to expand their clique. Listen, maybe it's, okay, I know I already talked about this, but I'm talking about this in a different way. Maybe this is 
emotional abuse. There's a lot of people out there that are claiming emotional abuse that I think just didn't like the fact that they were told they shouldn't sin. You know, their whole podcast devoted to this kind of thing where people have been abused in a Bible preaching church. Oh, I'm not talking about physical abuse, okay? Folks who claim that they were mistreated. Oh, my life was ruined because I was told that I shouldn't take drugs. My life was ruined because I was told to stay away from the liquor bottle. Oh, my life was ruined because I was told not to go out and marry an unsaved man. Oh, my life was ruined because they told me to obey God. You know, these folks, I think, have built up an entire narrative and they're getting counseling and they're counseling each other and they're talking all about how much hurt they've got over, I think, in many cases, probably not in all, but in many cases, somebody who just really wanted them to walk with God. And yet, the way they've perceived it, it hurts them. I'm not going to doubt that these folks have something genuinely lodged in their souls, but I don't believe it's a true offense in many cases. What I'm saying is this, listen... There might be things that someone did that was genuinely wrong and it genuinely hurt. There may be some things that hurt, though it may not have been intended. But in either case, these offenses can come to the surface and they can consume our minds. And we can't seem to dislodge them from our thoughts. There was one situation where I did a job for somebody. I have some skill in web design. I enjoy it. I love it. Personally, I love HTML and CSS. It's just fun. And you don't even know what I'm talking about, some of you, but I, I enjoy it. it. Gives me satisfaction. It's fun. And I did a job for someone at some point years past, and um, it was supposed to be a one-week job. It turned into a year-and-a-half job. And I did not, listen, I'm not a businessman. I'm a preacher, okay? I didn't talk about money at the beginning. This was a client I had done stuff for before, and they'd always paid me generously after the fact. And so I'm designing this thing. One week turned into a year and a half, and kind of around that time, my laptop was starting to die, and I was thinking, man, for all this time I'm spending, I'm gonna be getting me like a nice big old Mac laptop, you know, with all of the bells and whistles. And you know, I'm kind of dreaming about how I'm gonna spend the money that's gonna to come to me at some point. You know, I got to the end of the project, finished it, launched it. You know what I got? That is amazing, that's really good. Thank you so much. I thought surely the check is gonna be in the mail soon. I want you to know that for probably about two years, couldn't get it out of my heart. Oh, I tried to forget about it. Um, there's a certain sense in which I, I believed that God was going to bless. You know, when folks take advantage of you, God's got you. Okay? And um, I really actually believe that in response to that, God paid me. We ended up getting into our RV, which you all saw the last time we were here. That trailer should have been a $100,000 trailer. We got it for just over 30, okay? And I really believe that that was God encouraging me that he is our provider. And you know what? God gave me freedom for a bit. Then, you know, a little bit later, it just came back again. And, ugh. 
you know, I'd sometimes cross paths with this person and I'd just be like, don't they even realize how much time I spent on this thing? Come on. And then you know what got even worse? People started asking me to maintain it. And I would get other people, not this person, but other people, they'd be like, this thing's broken, can you fix it? And this thing's down, or hey, can you make this thing a little better over here? And I'm thinking, well, you know, one thing led to another, and I really had to give it up. And yet, the more I tried to give it up, the more I tried to just let it go, I'll be honest with you, I was able to do it for a time, but it would come back, and it would come back, and it would come back, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, so some of the things, because some of the things I mentioned dredged up some of those things in your mind again, and I want you to know, if it hurts 10 years later, it hasn't healed, right? For me, I came to a point of reconciliation, and I'm thankful for it. I came to a point in time when I had to communicate. I had to communicate. And in that particular situation, what I did was I said, hey, listen, I've got all these people coming to me about maintenance. I said, the initial pay did not happen, but I'll be honest with you, I've given that up to God, and you don't owe me anything. That's what I told the person. You don't owe me anything. I felt like it was the only thing that I could do. I told them, you don't owe me anything, but could we please talk about the ongoing maintenance? <laughs> could, could we maybe work out something? Because I didn't want to put them in a bad place, okay? I, I didn't. I care about the person, you know? And you know, what happened there in that meeting was the person said, in essence, you know what? I didn't realize how much work you put into this. We are going to pay you. I may not be able to do it right here at this point, but it's going to happen. And they did right by me. But listen, I really do believe in my heart. I had to let it go. That being said here, um, in, this, uh, in this particular matter, it is absolutely essential for us to deal with the root. Because if we do not deal with the root, you know what's going to happen? That root is going to produce something. You know what it's going to produce? Fruit, exactly. And you know what that fruit is? It's going to be either internalized anger, a troubled soul, or, and it's always going to happen in some way, shape, or form, or explosions that are going to hurt people. And guess what happens when you explode and hurt people? You know what happens to them? Offenses. They get lodged in their soul. I like David Attenborough stuff, okay? He believes in evolution, I don't, but other than that, it's really cool, okay? He had this one segment in the original Planet Earth video about these ants. You ever see this? There are these ants in the floor of the forest, okay? And these ants have a, a natural enemy, and this enemy is gonna sound really weird. The enemy is a fungus. The fungus is called cordyceps. Okay, kind of sounds like an over-the-counter medication, doesn't it? Um, cordyceps is a fungus that targets a very specific species. And what it does is through contact with the spores of this fungus, the fungus ends up burrowing its way into the host. In the case of the ant, it burrows its way into its head. It weaves its little tendrils into the mind and literally begins to pull the levers and control the motor movements of this ant. 
No joke. Look it up. Okay, This ant, controlled by this fungus, the, the fungus causes the ant to climb up the stalk of some kind of branch, and when it gets to the top, it kills the ant, and then it gets worse. It begins to grow a spire out of the head of the ant. That spire looks like a snake slithering its way out. And when it gets to a certain point, that appendage explodes. And spores float down within a certain radius of the explosion. And guess what happens to every ant that one of those spores lands on? It starts the whole process over again. In fact, according to my research, if an ant ever thinks that one of their, uh, that, that explosion can literally wipe out an entire colony. If ants realize that one of their members is infected, you know what they do? They grab it and they run for the hills. <laughs> they get that thing out of there because they know it could wipe them all out. You know what, well, we got a fungus in our midst sometimes too, don't we? It infects our minds. It causes us to do things we wouldn't ever do. It affects our priorities. It affects our decisions. And it can wreak havoc in God's churches. So how do you cure it? Listen, if we've identified the fruit and looked down and identified the root, there's only one thing left to do. Pull out the root so you can stop the spread. We hate that phrase now, don't we? Anyway, stop the spread. Anyway, we need to dislodge it from our lives, and the only way we can do that is through forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can here this evening. Um, Back in Ephesians 4, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to quote these verses. The scripture says, as I quoted earlier, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I want you to notice that forgiveness begins in the heart. Really where this needs to start, before you ever have a conversation with anyone, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to come to the point where you are what I'm going to call ready to forgive. Doesn't the Bible say that God is ready to forgive because of his son who paid the price for our sins on the cross? God in heaven is ready to forgive anyone and everyone who will come to him and call upon the name of his son. Aren't you grateful that God is ready to forgive? What God is calling for us to do is to also be ready to forgive. But what does that mean? It's a decision in your heart to release someone from their wrongdoing. Many speak of having forgiven already when a conversation about forgiveness happens. But listen, you must be willing to forgive, to let it go before they ever even ask for it. And you need to be ready to forgive freely, no strings attached, fully, every last part, and forever. Listen, you shouldn't say, you know what, I'll forgive you until you do it again. 
You shouldn't in your heart come to the decision, you know what, I'll forgive them of 90% of what they did, but that one thing I will never forgive them of. You can't forgive them with uh, disclaimers or qualifications. See, the forgiveness takes the love of Christ, the love that God had for you that was evidenced by His Son coming and dying on the cross for your sins. You need to take that love and apply it to your specific offenses, taking God's heart of mercy towards you and extending that very mercy towards them. So often we think, well, if they earn it, if they grovel, if they come to me and say this, that, or the other thing in the right tone, in the right way, and give me my money or whatever, then I will forgive them. But we have to, in our hearts, come to the point where we release it. Unfortunately, being ready to forgive is sometimes a hard place to be in. Because to be perfectly honest with you, it's not fully resolved until forgiveness is extended to the offender and received. See, when we are in a position of ready to forgive, sometimes that's all we can do. But when we are in a position of being ready to forgive and we let it go in our heart, when we released it, that's good, but it's not complete. And I fear that many times we have limited forgiveness to just this forgiveness in the heart. That may be all that's possible, but that's not all there is to forgiveness because there's also reconciliation. See, if all we have is ready to forgive, sometimes it must be maintained and at times revisited. That's why I, in that story that I told earlier, I would get victory over it. I would let it go. And then maybe a little bit later, when maybe finances were a little tight, it would come back again. Or when I'd see that person, it would come back again. And really, as much as I, in my heart, wanted to let it go and to be free from it, the deed had not been completed. And I know this may challenge some of our thinking. I know it challenged mine when I was studying this. Listen, we have to be ready to forgive in our own heart for our own sake. Because until you in your heart are willing to say, I'm letting it go, you will be the problem. The offense is a problem, don't get me wrong, but you will now create a new problem by harboring that resentment. You, the offended, will become the offender. So it's essential so that our resentment doesn't become an issue in and of itself for us, first and foremost for ourselves, to find freedom by letting go. But we must, if possible, move on to the completion of that forgiveness through reconciliation. How does that happen? It happens by an actual conversation. This requires two parties agreeing to the wrongdoing and the offended releasing the offender from the offense. Scripture speaks of this. Matthew 18 says, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And here I think it's important to uh, distinguish between true offenses and perceived offenses because in these conversations, we must conduct them with love. 
with humility and with meekness. And we must be ready to understand that the situation may not be as it appears. You may come to somebody and say, hey, listen, you said this years ago, and I want you to know it hurt me. And they might say, I am so sorry, but I want you to know I did not mean that the way that you thought I meant it. It's possible that somebody may not even know that they hurt you. It may be possible that they may have never intended it. And yet, reconciliation initiated in this case by the offended is one step towards towards true freedom. There must be clear communication and a willingness to admit that you may not understand the situation correctly. Listen, I find sometimes folks, they'll come in and say, you did this to me, and I want you to know it hurt me really bad. Well, and then they don't even give the other person a chance to talk. They're guilty until proven innocent. If we ever have a conversation like this, we have to come into it recognizing, hey, I may have misunderstood. But whether I misunderstood or not, I've been tormented. I've been hurt. You know, there's, uh, this is also absolutely essential. Reconciliation must not be motivated by selfishness. As we've seen, selfishness takes every misunderstanding and disagreement and turns it into an offense. Selfishness turns the offender into the victim and holds it over his head until he says what you want him to say. That's not reconciliation. That's just making things worse. See, the goal of any conversation about offenses and bitterness must be had from the platform of love and with a heart that is ready to forgive and for the purpose of true reconciliation. It must never be done to get one's point across and it must be never done to exercise control over someone. Often there's fault on both sides. You need to come into the conversation ready to realize that you know what? While I may have been hurt, I could have hurt them in the process too. There has got to be humility. There's got, listen, if you ever come into this thing to show them what for, if you ever come into a conversation just wanting to beat them over the head with their offense, you're not seeking reconciliation and you're not going to help yourself or them. But when you come in, there was one situation, I'm not even going to go into the details. I had somebody who was spiritually responsible for me give me terrible advice. My dad had made a decision about something, and this person said, your dad made the wrong decision, go tell him that he did. Hmm. So I went to my dad, and I told him that he made the wrong choice. My dad got mad. Who does he think he is? I've been your father your whole life. I'll give him a piece of my mind, my dad said. My dad never said that kind of thing, okay? You must have really gotten him riled up. Well, I'll be honest with you, that situation where that leader told me to do something hurt. And I worked with that leader pretty closely. And so for probably about the period of two or three years, I found in my heart a very difficult time getting along. And I remember one day, I remember thinking, I am sick of this. I don't want to feel this way against this man. I don't want to have this conflict in my heart and this difficulty fellowshipping especially since we're working so closely together. And so one day I I went to his office and I sat down with him and I said, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be doing this right now. 
I don't even know if what I'm about to say is appropriate. Please don't take this as disrespectful. But do you remember years ago when you said this? I said, you may have been right. I may be wrong. But I just want you to know it really hurt and I've had a hard time getting it out of my head. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just communicating. And I'll never forget that person had the humility to look across from me and say, you know what, you're right, I was wrong. And you know what happened? Reconciliation. That barb between us was gone. As far as that situation was concerned, I was free. And honestly, he's one of my best friends now. One of my best friends now. I'll say this in closing, reconciliation is not always possible, whether because the offender is dead or a conversation would be unsafe or unwise, or sometimes because the timing isn't right, sometimes you cannot extend forgiveness in person through conversation. And this is where it's particularly important to let go of the offense in the heart. You gotta trust God, God knows, God knows. And I wanna remind you, you need to be ready to be forgiven too. When someone comes to you, about a perceived or a true offense, you need to be humble and ready to admit that there has been a wrong or ready to clear up what could be a genuine misunderstanding. Listen, I guess my whole point here today is if we are going to be loving Christians, if we are going to pass God's test of love, the only factor that really matters can't be selfish. Selfishness takes every offense and sucks it in and hangs on to it. Selfishness harbors resentment. But love, love forgives. Can I have every head bowed here tonight and every eye closed here this evening? I want to ask you this. I've, I've told some of my own stories. And maybe you've got some stories of your own that you could share of some major offenses that you chose to forgive. Praise God for every one of them, but don't think because you have a story from the past that you don't need a new one today. Perhaps there are some here because of your home life, perhaps because of some things that have happened in your work, or perhaps even in your marriage, perhaps because of someone else, maybe even in this room or someone who no longer attends here. Something someone did or said to you has lodged in your soul. You've seen the offense bear fruit in your life. And you're sick of it like I was. I want to encourage you here tonight. The first step is going to be that forgiveness in your heart. That letting it go for your own sake. What I want to do is I would like to have everyone to stand here this time. If everyone could please stand. Stand to your feet. In just a moment, the piano is going to play. But before it does, I want to urge you that if God put his finger on an area of offense that's producing that horrendous fruit in your life, I want to encourage you, either where you're at or up front here at the altar, give it over to God. Let it go. Believe that God can work it together for good. That's why he designed it in the first place. And be willing to say they Owe me nothing. And then be willing to do whatever God says for the sake of reconciliation. As the piano plays, you do what God tells you to do here this evening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To learn more about Grace Baptist or how to have eternal life, visit gracekettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.